This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily's been captured by frogs. Her heart, that is. I've got some news to share about an upcoming visit to the eastern basin of Lake Ontario. Hey, have you heard of Sandbanks Provincial Park? Probably one of the nicest beaches in Canada. We have our second of a two-part series featuring blind Ironman Ryan Van Praet. I'll have some reflections to share on what it means to maintain your circle of friends during a COVID wave. Come on, Lewis. Let's go find Miss Lily. These frogs are driving me bonkers. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily. How you doing? Ribbit. <laughs> Is that something uh, that's coming up? It's called foreshadowing, Father. <laughs> Frogs are by far the coolest critters that live in the Great Lakes, or monster. Uh, and I'll happily debate anyone who says otherwise, because I love those little guys. However, frogs do a lot more than just sit on lily pads, look cute, and eat flies. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> here's five things frogs do that may alter your opinion about the cuteness of frogs. That's impossible. I love frogs. You can't you can't break me of my uh, love for frogs, but go try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you try. Okay. One, frogs don't drink, or at least not in the traditional sense. Yeah? Instead of drinking through their mouths, frog drink and breathe through their skin. Whoa. Yeah, frogs and other terrestrial amphibians like toads absorb water through a drink patch on their pelvic area when they get thirsty huh yeah cool frogs are also an indicator species meaning that if the frogs are healthy so are their habitats this is because of their permeable skin which absorbs either clean or polluted water if there is not enough oxygen in the water frogs can actually drown wow yeah no that makes sense well poor little froggies yeah uh, okay, two. Frogs swallow with their eyeballs. Whoop. Yeah. They gulp down their prey whole, then push their eyeballs down into their mouths to force the food down their throats. I think I'm going to try that. <laughs> no, could you imagine? It's not like you have much else use for your eyes, Dad. <laughs> yeah, but they look good, and that would make them totally not look good. Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Okay. Number three. Frogs turn into frogsicles. Yummy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just like bears and bats, but not beavers, many frogs hibernate by lowering their body temperature, heart rates, and metabolisms. Ontario's wood frogs, chorus frogs, spring peepers, and gray tree frogs turn into frogsicles <laughs> once temperatures drop below negative 5 degrees Celsius. Their breathing bodily functions and even their hearts stop as minuscule ice crystals form inside them and freeze about 40% of the water in their body. Wow. Yeah. Frogs that freeze have high levels of glucose in their blood that behave like a sort of antifreeze. Yeah. Huh? Um, preventing full freezing and organ damage. Not all frogs freeze, however. This is important. Yeah. Um, aquatic Great Lakes frog spe species like bullfrogs, mink frogs, and green frogs all simply chill out 
in unfrozen water, breathing oxygenated water through their skin. So all winter, they're just lying down in the bottom of the lake, under the ice, just just chilling. Literally, just, just chilling. Just dreaming of mosquito season. Ah, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number four. Bullfrogs eat everything and anything. Wow. Including humans. What? I'm, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> um, fish, turtles, snakes, bats, and birds are all fair game. As long as the bullfrog is big enough to overpower them. Wow. Yeah, perhaps freakiest of all, bulldog, bullfrogs will even devour smaller frogs. Ah. So yeah, cannibalism. 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 Which it's not. It's not rare. Yeah. In no, the no. animal world. Fish do it. Fish eat fish. Oh yeah, yeah. Fish are cannibals. Yeah. How do these soft-skinned, googly-eyed giants manage to eat such an impressive <laughs> array of other animals? You tell me. Yeah. Three reasons. Strong jaws, sharp teeth, and dexterous tongues. <laughs> dexterous tongues. Well, you know what? You have to be careful when you're fishing around lily pads because their tongues will shoot out. And, and slap you. And no, they, they get at your hook. So oh. even if your hook is close to them, you know, within 10 inches or so, they can shoot out their tongue and grab what you're trying to fish with. And you think there's no way it's going to go for that. Boom, they go for it. So, yeah, you have to be careful. Otherwise, you could accidentally hook them. I've never actually seen a frog do that whole tongue thing. No, I've seen it in movies. I really want to see it in real life. Yeah, you need you need slow motion photography to capture that because but, it's so quick. Yeah, but they can clench onto prey like a slimy boa constrictor. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, number five, mm -hmm. frogs eat themselves. What? Yeah, we've all not often eaten a hangnail or two, <laughs> yeah. I, I well, guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but frogs take auto cannibalism, which is a thing apparently, yeah. to the next level. When frogs shed dead skin, they munch on it for a protein-packed snack. Oh. Well, you know what? I had a lizard, and it did that too. Yeah, ate its own skin. It's when, it's but, dead skin. But when that but lizards shed, and I yeah. yeah. Well, you got to do something with that good old <clears throat> protein pack. <laughs> Re recycle the nutrients. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, frogs shed their skin to keep it from hardening so that they can continue to breathe through it, taking in oxygen while they're in the water. Nothing like a fresh, supple skin of a newly shed frog. <laughs> you okay there, Dad? <laughs> you, want, you want me to call Mom to change the dinner plans? Or? <laughs> I've never had frog legs, and I never will. I, something, I, I just, I don't want to eat frogs. I like I'm, frogs. I like frogs, too. I don't want to eat them. No. And they're, and they're illegal to use them as bait anymore. People used to catch them and, and hook them and use them to catch bass. They were very effective, but that's, that's illegal now. Lily, these are all things I did not know about frogs. Time for the bucket list. In my role as president of Bluefish Canada, I've been asked to help facilitate the adoption of a national marine conservation area in the eastern basin of Lake Ontario. Over the next four weeks, I'll be meeting with researchers, commercial fishers, recreational anglers, First Nation fishers, and hearing their stories and insights about the importance of the fish, how they're doing, and what it means for their communities. Together, their fishing activities generate well over $8 billion of economic activity every year. That's both sides of the U.S.-Canada border, and that's the Great Lakes. But still, $8.5 billion? That's a lot of fishing. So please come along and join me for this insightful and exciting project, Outdoor Tips and Tech. 
degrees on your left. 122 meters. Listen as Ironman competitor Ryan Van Prate shares with us his insights for training and competing in Ironman triathlon competitions. So let's talk about some of the tips and uh, tech you're using then to do this. So what's your training look like? Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying this is, this is my, my, my life, my hobby. Yeah. I don't want to say my identity because I, I, um, hopefully if, if it ever goes away, I still am confident enough in it to do other things, but, but I love it. And so I've invested a lot in it. Um, I have a treadmill, thankfully I've got an indoor trainer, uh, which called a smart trainer. Um, and actually just a year and a half ago, I invested in uh, an endless pool. So at my back door, I have, you know, a swim spa, which essentially I can go and turn it on and go swimming uh, at any particular time. But I mean, this is after years and years of uh, back and forth in a, in a local YMCA or, or whatnot. So again, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at the, uh, the mid to latter stages of my career. And so I've invested a lot. And so I, I have all the tools at my disposal, I guess. A, a stationary bike. Yeah. So it's a, it's a regular bike, just put on this trainer. And so essentially it mimics riding outdoors. I, I load up an app on my computer or on my phone and I can, it's kind of like world of Warcraft where you play against people from around the world, except imagine bicycles. So yeah. as I'm riding my bike, whatever speed I'm riding my bike is translated into that, uh, into that world, into my avatar. And, and I'm racing against people around the world or, you know, across the street. And I mean, pro cyclists use it and stuff. So it's, it's pretty realistic and legit. Can you see the screen or are you using audio on this? A little bit. So a lot of these aren't very accessible yet. I mean, I'm yeah. working on it, but um, yeah, I can, I have a little bit of central vision that I can kind of see the things moving around. I don't see the finer details, but um, you know, if I'm riding with one of my guides uh, and he's riding at his house four hours away from me, our two little avatars are riding side by side. And then we might be FaceTiming or messaging each other and chatting as we go or texting, you know, trash talk, te texting each other back and forth. <laughs> so. so when you're in the race, then I guess you're not on a tandem bike then, are you? I am. Yeah. So that was probably the biggest change. So yeah. racing solo, you swim bike and run by yourself, but now um, when I swim, I, I swim uh, with a tether, so a bungee cord between my guide, and there's different ways you can do it, side by side or front and back. Uh, yeah. I, I essentially follow him uh, in the water, and then on the bike, it is a tandem. Yeah, so uh, I, I have my share of tandems and, uh, and, and have, uh, yeah, have learned to, to ride those, have learned to, to maintain them, and, and it's kind of my collection now. And then on the run, uh, we run like you've probably seen lots of other guide runners, you know, we we're, we're tethered and we, you know, we have, we have a system worked out that way as well. Talk to me about exactly how you connect yourself to your swimming partner with the, with the bungee, like where does it go around the body of the, your partner and where does it go around your body? Yeah, there's lots of different ways you can do it. And, and if you were to race on an international level, um, there's certain rules, you know, like in the Paralympics and stuff. Um, I was part of that national team for a handful of years. So so, you know, there are some specific rules, but when you're racing essentially for fun, like I am, um, you can be a little looser. I don't want to say with the rules, but uh, in, in official Paralympics, you can't swim front to back. You have to swim side by side. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we swim front to back just for almost safety of others and, and just efficiency. There is mm -hmm. no, uh, you know, I'm not getting pulled along uh, like people think. Uh, basically, the, for those that have a white cane, that little bungee cord that's on the top, um, mm -hmm. 
that connects it together. That's essentially the, the size of bungee that we use, like the thickness. And my guide would have a loop of that around his waist. Uh, and you imagine if they're swimming in front of you, mm -hmm. that cord would kind of dangle down between their legs. It would uh, be coming in front of my face and then attached to my waist. So essentially- around your waist, I'm, right? Yeah, around my waist. So it's follow the leader. So if he moves a little bit to the right, that cord, um, would move to the right and I would either see it with a little bit of vision I have or more particularly I would hit it with my my hand and I would know oh he's moving that way and it makes it easy for him because then he doesn't have to even worry where I am right I'm directly behind him the entire time uh, nobody gets tangled up in the cord and it's quite quite simple so just a thin tiny piece yeah. of yeah. elastic bungee I, I did it with a thicker piece and I, I wrapped it around my uh, my partner's waist and it came off mm -hmm. the back at his back right behind him mm -hmm. and then yep. i wrapped it around behind my arms and i tied it behind my back and then i went a sort of on a 45 i go on a 45 to the partner that way yep. it's not getting into his legs and i it's sort of coming over my shoulder and then if he goes too too you know too far to one way i can feel it with my hand if he goes too far the other way i can feel it with my head and i just as yeah. long as it's between my head and that arm on that side i keep that 45 it, that worked well for me, but you're right. There's a hundred ways of doing it, but that's, that sounds like the best way, like front to back, you're not going to bang into anybody, which is really the main thing. It's so crowded at the beginning of a, a swim, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a lot side by side. That's fine. But if you're a really good swimmer and you're out in the front and you're not getting tangled, that that's good. Yeah. Um, we're, we're middle pack swimmers and front to back is, is ideal. Um, less people to get tangled. Um, less for you to get tangled in. You're in the draft of your mm -hmm. partner. So mm -hmm. essentially you get a little bit of a free ride, which is, mm -hmm. which is nice. You know, you're not getting pulled, but no. with anything, when you draft, it's a little quicker. So yeah, it's just, that's one way we've done it, but there are, there's tons of different ways. And I think that's the key with, with a lot of adapted sport in general and triathlon is one of those things. It's, it's, there's not exactly one exact way for everybody to do it. It's, it's what works best for you as a team. So tell me about your tandem bike and the pedals you're using. So I've got a few tandems, but the racing tandem that I have, you can only make a tandem so fast and so aerodynamic, but it's like any tandem, you know, uh, it's two wheels, uh, two sets of handlebars, two, two seats, two sets of pedals. Uh, and essentially the main thing people wonder about with a tandem is, you know, um, who steers? Well, you know, the person with the vision is up front, they steer, they shift the gears, uh, for the most part, uh, you can make it so the person in the back shifts gears, but that's a whole other story. Um, but you are connected with your pedals. So the the pilot's pedals are connected to my pedals by a chain on the mm -hmm. left-hand side. And then mm -hmm. my pedals are connected to the gears at the back. And so we have to pedal in sync. You have to be comfortable with the gear that you're in, right? You have to be communicating that, um, you know, if you're going to turn left or right, uh, how you're going to do that in sync. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a lot of communication and practice, but it is honestly, substantially easier than most people think. Yeah. Um, you know, I've trained dozens of pilots and uh, only feared for my life maybe once or twice. So <laughs> are you using basket pedals or clip on pedals? We use, they call them clipless pedals, which is really odd because they actually clip into the cleats. Yeah. So I have, yeah, my, I have a cycling shoe, which has a, a cleat on the bottom and clips in to a specific pedal. So it basically allows you to be connected to your pedals constantly. So you have more efficiency you're always connected to so your pushing and pulling. Uh, so you're getting the most power out of your pedal stroke at the same time. I think as a, someone who's been a stoker on a tandem bike a lot, and I'm six foot three, I realize mm -hmm. the importance of having that seat height at the right level, but also the handlebar height, because if you raise the seat, that's one thing to get that proper stroke in your leg. 
But if the handlebars don't come up, you're bent right over. And then your head is right into the back of the person in front of you. It's not very comfortable for anyone. So this is important, right? Getting those heights of the, uh, the handlebars and, and, and seats just right. Well, it's very ironic that you, you mentioned that because that's what we're working on right now to get things race ready. On a regular bike, you can set your position and forget about it. But on the back of the tandem, you almost have to be a little, you have to let it go a little bit. If, yeah. Especially me, I'm a bit obsessed with my position, but I have to let it go a bit because I have to almost mold around what's comfortable for my pilot. And so mm -hmm. a different pilot mm -hmm. will maybe limit your position. So that's exactly it. You know, you're, you want your seat height to be proper no matter what. And then you very much have to tweak your handlebars to get them as close to comfortable as possible. A tandem will never be comfortable. No, it is just, uh, I always call it limiting the agony. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Yeah, your handlebars are connected to his seat post. So if you've got a pilot Correct. with a short legs, that seat post is now all of a sudden really low and your handlebars are really low, right? So yeah, I have lots of different parts and I have a whole bins full of parts to mix and match. And yeah, and yeah being low, you want to be low because if you're racing, you want to be tucked away behind your pilot, but you also yeah. need to be you know comfortable as well. So it's just a, it, again, it's everything's a team aspect, which is, which is great. Um, it mm -hmm. almost takes the pressure off of you a little bit because you know, everything that happens, happens as a team. Now let's talk about the, the foot race at the end. You know, we saved the best for last, right? The, the punishing mm. run. How do you connect with your, with your guide on that one with your partner? Yeah. So I, I've tried lots of different types of tethers. Like I said, there's the thick bungees, there's static rope, there's all sorts of things. So what I actually have right now is I have a rope that's about a foot and a half long, maybe a little longer, just a piece of nylon rope. And at each end, there's a about a three inch long plastic carabiner clip, like you would see, you know, mm -hmm. like for mountain climbing, but obviously just plastic. And I can clip that on to my waist or I can hold on to it. Uh, my partner can do the same. They can hold on to it or they can clip it on. So it allows versatility in how you want to run. Um, because I have a little bit of central vision on certain roads, I can kind of clip in and and if I can see maybe the, the dotted line, I can kind of follow that or follow a person. But mm -hmm. in more technical areas, we'll both hang on and we'll sort of choke up on the rope. So our arms are almost touching and mm -hmm. um, it just allows variety. Um, so yeah, that's what we use. Just a piece of rope with some carabiners on it, essentially. So not the hand on the elbow, which is the way I do it. I just... <laughs> yeah, I because I come from like running is kind of where I started and, and, and running, having run... I guess by myself, you know, uh, I am studying that kinesiology is my background. So I'm all about okay. human motion and efficiency. And so, you know, when you're, when you're limiting arm swing on one side, it, your body has to do weird things to compensate. And even, even when I'm holding the tether and, and close up to my guide and that arm is limited, mm. it changes your, your cadence. And so, um, yeah, it's just something to be mindful. I would always encourage people to find a system that allows as much freedom of movement as possible with the option to then, uh, like you said, grab an elbow or my guide may grab my wrist if we're going through a technical territory. But uh, yeah, the more you're limiting your, your equilibrium, um, you may run into problems down the line. So how do you do it on the treadmill then? I just change hands. Like I always keep my three fingers, yeah. three middle fingers on the bar on the treadmill in front of me. And then I just, I try to do so much on that side, then I change it the other side. But I never, I never love that experience because I really want to have my arms flailing. And I know some other blind people that they just managed to stay on the treadmill <laughs> without yeah. connecting to it. I, I couldn't do it. I run into the front, I run off the back. It, it never goes well. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I love hate the treadmill. I'm very thankful that I have one, but I, I just, I don't enjoy it. For some people, they love it. They think it's, it prevents injury, but I actually find I have a tendency to get injured more on the treadmill because it just, your running style is not exactly the same. It's not as yeah. free. With your own treadmill, um, I, have a, I have a piece of rope that's attached to the middle bar yeah. with a tiny little carabiner that I clip onto my waistband. One of my biggest fears is falling off the back. Yeah, me too. Right, is how me far too. back. So I have this little piece of rope that, I've obviously tested and what'll happen is, is if I drift too far back, it'll just kind of tug on my waistband of my shorts. And I know, okay, I've, I've drifted far back for, for side to side. Yeah. I mean, I could tap my hand side to side. If I'm on mm -hmm. an unfamiliar treadmill, I might put my hand down just like you have as well. Mm -hmm. um, because I have a little bit of central vision left. I stare very, very hard at whatever I can focus on straight ahead of me, right. um, which keeps me centered and you can do it. But as you can imagine, after a while, it becomes pretty exhausting. So after about a half an hour in the treadmill, I'm, I'm more mentally spent than physically because you're just focusing so hard and not trying to fall off. If you tie yourself to the treadmill, how does the uh, emergency stop cable work? Because I, I rely on that thing. Man. I would recommend this only on a familiar treadmill. Anytime I go to a hotel or a gym, um, I, yeah, what I do is I, I bring my piece of rope and my clip, but I also then attach the emergency stop on my home treadmill i'm going to knock on wood here i've not had any real issue with that and i think <laughs> i'm so comfortable with it that if i start to fall i you know i know where to swipe my hand really quickly to pull that emergency button but okay um, hopefully i haven't jinxed myself here <laughs> like i'm sore to bring it up <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but these are all like questions i've i've wrestled yeah. myself and i it's interesting to know that you wrestle with it too and um there's, yeah. there's no perfect solution to this, is there? No, I just, I think my recommendation, I have a friend who just started running and he, he was holding on with both hands running and I, oh boy. and I encourage, oh. I just encourage anybody, you know, obviously safety first, but the more you can uh, free up your motion and get comfortable in a, some situation to, to run with more regular um, biomechanics, the better it's going to be because the longer we sort of create an imbalance, the the harder it's going to be to run efficiently and you're just going to tire yourself out and it's not mm -hmm. going to be as enjoyable. So talk to one guy, he, he just taps the tops of his fingernails on each yep. hand as he's running on the bar in front of him. Right. As long as he's yep. tap, tap, tap with each arm as he's moving, he has a real freedom of move, but I got it. I think he's gifted somehow. Cause I, I try that and I, 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 it, I get scared. <laughs> I have as well. Yeah. A friend of mine's a Paralympic athlete, many time gold medalist, and he's totally blind and, and actually has the same treadmill as me. And so I, I can't, I can't complain. Like, uh, yeah. I've tried the exact same thing. He's not tied on and he just, he just occasionally taps the rail moving yeah. at substantially faster speed than me. And I'm like, I have no idea. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. bravery beyond me. <laughs> it's just, it just something you can't explain. You just yeah. kind of get used to doing it. I, I just, like I said, I rest three fingers on the bar. I don't grab it. I just rest my fingers on there because I don't want to be pulling myself. And like you said, losing that, that form, I just want to rest my hand there. And then I just move, change hands, change hands, you know, this hand and then that hand. And just so I can keep the other hand swinging. Cause that, I think it really helps with the respiratory system when the arms are swinging, right? Well, you're relaxed. Right. And I think that's what I mean by freedom of motion is anything, even on a tandem, right? If you're not the more comfortable you can make it or swimming, the more comfortable you can make it. It's never going to be amazing, but the mm -hmm. more you tweak that and the more you find what works for you, anything in endurance sport is a just being relaxed because it's all about efficiency of movement. Um, so that's the number one thing, even if you do hang on. Yeah. If you just rest your fingers on there versus having sort of a death grip, that's going to help you relax more. Uh, and that's, that's really the key.
really for Ironman, it's just, it's about consistency of volume. Like every week you've got to do a long bike and a long run and then you slowly build that up. But um, more just about the accumulation of fatigue <laughs> over yeah. months and months and months. And you're sort of hardening your body up, right? You're just being resilient. When's your race? Uh, August uh, 28th. So August 28th. So yeah. why don't we loop back in September? We'll get a little like a three, four minute update on how the race went. Fingers crossed. We have a good story to share, but either way, it'll be a story. All right, man. Yeah, good well, luck. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to chat. As a person who's blind like you, I've assembled a whole circle of friends. Yeah, how many good friends you have in your life? Well, you know, as someone without sight, it's important to have at least one. What I notice, though, that every time a COVID wave hits, people become a little more isolated. We think we're being careful by limiting the number of people we call on for support, for rides, things like that. Our network members, our friends, family... They know that we depend on other people for rides, and they're wondering just how many cars we're getting into with different people. To our family and friends, we can be ranked as slightly higher risk contacts. So when there's a wave of COVID, our lives become that much more isolated compared to the rest of the population. It may be unfair, but it's important to take into consideration people's feelings and concerns during these waves. Pretending that people don't regard us as high risk and asking them to do favors for us, like taking us somewhere, is insensitive. Just make it clear that when you call or text a friend or a family member, you're not asking for a ride. You're just reaching out to see how they're doing and to say hi. You'd be surprised just how much relief you'll hear in their voice when you let them know it's a no-strings-attached call. Don't drive your friends and family away by expecting them to take risks they're not prepared to take. The wave will pass again, and life will get back to normal again. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.